you are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Continuing support for Rootbound is brought to you by Roses. Baby, I compare you to a kiss from a rose on the gray. Ooh, the more I get of you, the stranger it feels. Yeah. This is a weird ad. Roses. friends, and welcome to another episode of Rootbound. My name is Steve. I'm just sitting out here in my garden, and I'm picking some dandelion leaves. Dandelions are really tasty green, I talked about in the second episode of the podcast. And, you know, on this episode, we're going to be talking uh, more about foraging. Uh, This is maybe not quite foraging because it's in my garden, but it is a wild plant. And so as we discuss foraging, I wanted to kind of talk about a few kind of guidelines and ethics for foraging. You know, I'm a new forager myself. I'm still trying to learn all this stuff, and I thought I might share some of the advice I've gotten. And so first off, just a disclaimer, uh, Rootbound is not responsible for anything that you do in the wilderness, anything that you eat, anything that you harvest. Uh, Be smart, make good choices, be responsible. Uh, don't take any of this as a recommendation. This is just general information that you can use however you will. Second, before you decide to start harvesting any wild plant, you should always consult with a local expert. Talking with someone who really knows the plants in your area is really the best way to positively identify a plant, which is important for safety. And it's also the best way to understand how to responsibly harvest a plant in your area because that changes from place to place. Similarly, before you decide to start harvesting any wild plant, you should do as much research as you can about those plants, really try to understand them as best as possible, and try to observe those plants in the wild for a bit before you decide to start harvesting them. And finally, and maybe most importantly, before you decide to start harvesting any wild plant, make sure you know how to harvest responsibly and never take more than you need. You'll read online about this thing called the rule of thirds, which is to, at maximum, only ever take one-third of any wild resource um, out there. I tend to skew even more conservative than that and take even less than that. You know, think about what you need and and think about how what you take might damage the environment. And also think about people who might come behind you. You know, you might only take a third, but if someone else comes and takes a third and someone else comes and takes a third, that could be damaging. So you you got to think about how you're going to have an impact on the wild environment and how you're going to have an impact on that wild environment and err on the side of caution. But yeah, those are some rules and guidelines about foraging. If I missed anything, audience, you know, I am a beginner myself. If you think I missed something or you think there's something really important that I should have covered, feel free to email me, rootboundpodcast at gmail.com. And with that, let's move on to our guest segment for today. I just took a foraging class, and not to brag, I was voted Mr. Fungus. Hi, Mallory. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Steve. Do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. Common milkweed, Asclepius cerraica. Um, that's that's great. I, you know, milkweed. I think we all know about milkweed because of like monarch butterflies, but that's like I think all we get as children. And then I've just now understood its edibility a little bit, but I've not really experimented. So I'm super excited for you to share that because I have something 
I think sometimes we just need permission from someone who knows more to like actually try stuff. And I see the milkweed. And I'm like, so yeah, anyway, I'm very excited to hear about milkweed from you, Mallory. Great. Um, the, uh, the thing that drew me to milkweed, and I think the thing that I learned from milkweed, which is something I try to, when I have a plant that's really special to me, it's usually there's a lesson that I learned from it, a, a specific thing that it taught me about either food or about ecology or about the life cycle of plants or the life cycles of animals and other and birds and butterflies obviously in this case butterflies are important but uh the thing i learned from milkweed i think is a certain kind of patience with learning a plant when i first read about milkweed the wild food literature is full of stern warnings about milkweed and its toxicity uh, and especially its bitterness. And these are very common misconceptions um, that that are repeated ad nauseum in the literature. The other way I learned patience was because I know it's such a precious plant for not just monarchs, but many other pollinators. One of the things I love about milkweed is in the height of the season when the flowers are blooming, the plant is absolutely covered with different insects. Usually I'll see, very commonly I guess I would say, I'll see 10, 12 different insects on a milkweed plant. Uh, and actually they're not pollinated by monarchs, they're pollinated by large wasps and bees. Oh wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, the monarchs are not effective pollinators. They, they 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 do use it as their food source for the caterpillars, but they do not. They can't really effectively pollinate. Um, it has to do with the complexity of the milkweed flower. Also, if you see hummingbirds on a milkweed plant, they can't get into it. They're trying, but they can't get the nectar. Oh, very interesting. Um, that that's really interesting. I want to get back to that patience lesson a little bit because I think that's yeah. super fascinating. But just maybe for we a little to- bit of just background. Wait, say that again. I said, well, you have to be patient about the patience lesson. Oh, yeah. <laughs> true, true. Uh, very, very good. I did want to maybe go back just a little bit to basics for some people who might be listening sure. who've never seen milkweed before and what it looks like and maybe some of its yeah, descriptions. Well, it's very tall. Uh, it's a. It's probably... I've always read that it caps out at six feet, but I don't know that I've ever seen a six foot tall milkweed plant. I think about five feet is pretty normal, four to five feet uh, in my area anyway. They may get taller elsewhere. Um, They grow pretty much anywhere, roadsides, open meadows. They can tolerate dry and sandy soil. Um, They spread very, very quickly and very erratically. They don't form dense clusters. They form little communities because they spread primarily by rhizomes. So they'll, they'll sneak around, uh, and kind of pop up, you know, here and there in a field. Um, but they can become quite numerous. Uh, that was, that was the, the patience that I learned was I was loath to collect it because I was worried that I was going to do damage to the population. And so I spent a couple of years really studying the local population to see how much of it there was. And when I realized there was quite an abundance of it, I felt safer in collecting it. I think that's a really good rule of thumb with any native plant um, is to 
observe it very carefully like that. Um, that's why I don't collect ramps, for instance. There are just not enough of them in the area. The leaves are kind of downy, uh, covered with a little bit of a soft uh, down. Um, they're l- large leaves, pretty simple, uh, with a big midrib. Um, they're very, the flowers are very colorful. They range from kind of a greenish tinted pink to an uh, almost purple, lilac purple color. Sometimes they have a lot of white in them. Uh, they have they have kind of a range of color. There's also a number of milkweeds, but the common milkweed is the one that you'll see the most often. Uh, and it's quite, the other ones are quite distinctive looking from it. They don't very look very similar, except in the structure of the flower, which is like a globe with these very complex um, multiple flowers in it. Um, and the, and the colors are often similar, although a butterfly weed, for instance, is bright orange. Uh, that's another native to the area. Most of the milkweeds are native to North America, uh, or central or South America. There are some native to Africa as well, which is where the plant was named in the Cyraica in the common name is because Linnaeus thought the, the plant came from the Middle East, um, even though it's native to North America. So it, it's just one of those incorrect uh, binomial names that stuck. <laughs> that seems to be a theme. <laughs> it happens a lot. Yeah. And then, and what, and then, and then the other thing I think I know about milkweed is I've, you know, the flowers are kind of going right now where I am, but <laughs> then there's the pods and what do those look like? And how does, how do those pods form from the flowers? Actually something I've, I've never been. They, of. they start out real small. They're kind of, um, they look a bit like, um, well, they're often compared to okra, but that's more about how they're cooked. They're sort of fat little uh, football shapes with a, a bit of a beak, a bit of an extended kind of nose to them. The way they develop is they start out real small with immature silk material inside them, which you can also eat uh, when it's young. It's like almost like a cheese. You open it, mm. you can scrape the material out and throw it into a pasta. And it, people will actually think it's just melted cheese because it has the same kind. Oh, wow. Up to it. Yeah, it's very interesting. That's the sort of the quote unquote fifth edible part. Um, I, I always call it that there's that there's five edible parts and that's the fifth one. Um, mm. The uh, the other ones are the shoots, the buds, the flowers and the pods, the whole pods. But the, you can only eat the pods before the material inside is formed. Um, the rule, general rule of thumb is about two inches is about the size you want. Um, and not when they're super small, you want them to get a little bit big one and a half to two inches somewhere in that range and uh and before the material forms uh when the material forms inside the outside of the pod gets very woody and mm-hmm. um or well very densely fibrous and the inside becomes uh, uh inedible because it's essentially turning into a, a kind of silk um that's the material that's used um most often now in milkweed when that's used as a uh, as a non-edible material, like you can stuff pillows with it. Uh, mm. During World War II, they uh, children gathered milkweed to stuff into life preservers because the uh, the life preserver was usually filled with kapok material from the kapok tree, which is in Indonesia, which was controlled by Japan. So they they had they wow. weed fluff and used those to make to stuff the life preservers with. 
Yeah, it's pretty cool. Wow, that's super. Wow, I've never. That's really fascinating. And that that silken side is is its purpose to like uh, send the seeds in the air. Is that what it's for? Or yeah, it, yeah, they're like it becomes. Uh, if you ever go in a big milkweed f- field in autumn, you'll see with the pods split open and the it it sort of rides the wind. They they spread. They mostly actually spread by rhizomes, but they also. Spread Mm-hmm. fairly effectively by seed. Uh, that's usually how they establish uh, newer colonies, and it's why it can be such a widespread weed. The reason it's not as widespread as it used to be has more to do with agriculture than anything else, and people also seeing it as a, a noxious plant or an, an obnoxious plant. Uh, they, people think it's ugly, which I find really strange because it's one of the mm-hmm. plants. Um, and the flower is so incredibly beautiful and attract, I, you know, I, I guess also people don't like plants that attract bees, um, which it certainly does. It attracts all kinds of insects. So it even has two specific bugs that feed on it. There's a small and a large milkweed bud bug uh, that they, they, um, two different species that feed on, on it fairly exclusively. Um, very interesting. I'm think I'm thinking now about what you said about seeing a field in fall, and I, I think I've seen that with the silk. But what do the seeds look like? Are they really tiny? Or I can't. No, I can't imagine. They're, they're the large. Seed. They're um, they mm. look like little eyes. They have um, kind of they're an oval, and they have a like a dot in the middle of them. There's a casing around it. It's just a you know a, a hard seed with a casing. They're they, they look like eyes, and then they 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 catch on the wind on, with those strands of silk. So, and there's usually a huge number of them per, per pod. There's quite a few in each pod. So, um, that's you know, part of their, their strategy. Uh, it's also a perennial plant. Um, and even, uh, even will be perennial within this or return within the space of a season. If you cut milkweed shoots, the shoot will return. Oh, wow. Yeah. One of the fields that I visit a lot that has milkweed in it is, regularly there's a trail mode through it and you'll always see when you walk through the grass will be kind of low but then there'll be the milkweed that they mowed over popping up uh, like a little bit higher than the grass and the plants will never get as high as they would Mm -hmm. uh normally but they'll still flower um even though they're really short they could be like a foot or two tall and they'll still flower very interesting um so I thought maybe I have a couple of things I want to go into this because it's super fascinating. One, if we could, if we, if we've had the patience to get back to the patience part. And I think you were talking about this common knowledge of its toxicity, which is something I've, you know, you hear about a lot of plants and I just would love to hear you talk about that a little bit more and, and how you came to how you, you know, uh, went beyond the common knowledge or, or, you know, your, your story with that. Cause that's really interesting. And then maybe after that, we can talk about, you know, how, how one would eat them. Great. Yeah. The, so there's a, there's a real common thread in the literature, which is that it's toxic. Um, now a lot of milkweeds are toxic, um, mm-hmm. but common milkweed isn't toxic to humans. Uh, it shouldn't be eaten raw. Um, although you can eat it raw. Um, many people will, well, not many people, but some people might get an upset stomach from eating it raw. But it's not particularly high in the toxic compounds that are found in other milkweed species. Uh, it's quite low in them. And the 
the the real common misconception about it is that it's bitter. It's not bitter at all. In fact, one of the ways you can differentiate between uh, milkweed and dogbane, which uh, dogbane doesn't look anything like milkweed once it's fully grown, but the or even partially grown, but the shoots people confuse the shoots for each other. Um, even though they are fairly different, but they're not, they're different to people that really understand plants. They're not different for people that are learning. So it's a, it's one to avoid, but if you cut a piece of uh, milkweed shoot, the set, even the sap itself isn't bitter to the taste. Whereas that of dogbane, if you cut a piece of dogbane, which is a toxic plant and taste the sap, that's the sap is incredibly, I mean, you know, incredibly bitter. Um, the, I'm not really sure why there's this misconception about bitterness. Sam Thayer seems to think that it all stems from Yule Gibbons and that Yule Gibbons was preparing dogbane rather than milkweed because he instructed hmm. everyone to boil it three times to, you know, that it's extremely bitter unless it's processed extent, you know, and, and you, you can't use cold water. You have to pour boiling water over it because if you use cold water, it'll fix the bitterness principle in it. There's all this stuff in the literature. And then a lot of people just copied that information from Gibbons. I'm not sure that that's a hundred percent correct because my basic thought on that is I, I've got a, you know, a couple different editions of stalking the wild asparagus, which is Gibbons classic book. And there's a pretty clear picture of milkweed on the milkweed page. I find it hard to believe that he never once opened a copy of his own book, looked at that and said, that's not the plan I'm eating. Wait a minute. <laughs> and that's a that kind of strained my credulity a little bit. I think maybe he just believed it was bitter and didn't really taste it, um, because it it I have found some classical sources from white settlers and colonists writing down what Native Americans did with the plant and saying that it was processed multiple times that it was bitter. Um, so that may have been where he got that information, and he just never tried. Hmm. Which is, I mean, kind of understandable. If you believe a plant's toxic and it has to be processed, you're not going to sit there and start munching on it raw, unless you're, you know, slightly crazy, um, which I guess is what happened to me. I mean, I sort of just, you know, <laughs> I never really, to be honest, as I read about it more and more and I encountered it more and more, I kind of, you know, I started, I started with the first thing I think I did was I cooked um, some of the buds in a stir fry. And I didn't bother boiling them multiple times. I just didn't, it didn't make a lot of sense to me from what I was reading. Um, and at that point, you know, I'd read a couple things online where people said, you know, who were experienced said, you know, I don't really process this that much. I fry the pot, you know, pods and things like that. I mean, it's a similar thing with pokeweed. If you read about poke, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's all this cautionary tales about, uh, about processing pokeweed, which I mean, you definitely need to do, but uh, and, you know, traditionally in Appalachia, they just took the stalks and peeled them and then battered them and fried them. I mean, that, you know, these people didn't die. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's some leeway to the toxicity of it. But, um, yeah, the, 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 the toxic compounds that are found in milkweeds are generally, they're found in much, much higher concentrations and toxic concentrations in Things like uh, Asclepias tuberosa, which is a butterfly weed, Asclepias incarnata, which is swamp milkweed. I don't advise eating any of those. Common milkweed is the only one to eat. Um, and especially because the other, unless you're growing them, 
um, which I will get to because I that's where I eat most of my milkweed is just from my own yard. Unless you're growing them, those other milkweeds are fairly uncommon, at least in my area. They're not all over the woods like common milkweed is. And common milkweed is everywhere. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, let, well, let's talk about, you know, you said there's five different ways to eat it. I wonder if you could quickly go through yeah. those, I mean, five parts, five parts. And, and how you would eat them. Yeah, how, how you would each of the eat each of those parts. I mentioned it a little bit before, but maybe we didn't catch it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe you could talk about how those five and how, how you prefer to, to cook them. Sure. So the, the first part is the shoot. Um, and it's like asparagus. Uh, you know, it, it's the same kind of thing. You bend it and snap it where it breaks or you can cut it if you want. Uh, and it's a, it's a shoot with the leaves furled together, uh, held together against the stem. Um, kind of like pokeweed. Similar, similar sort of mm-hmm. thing. That's a, that's the stage you collect it at. Uh, you know, usually when it's you know six to eight inches tall, something like that. Um, and if you cut this early enough in the season, it will come back. Um, actually, it doesn't even have to be that early. It's it, it milkweed's a very pernicious plant. It just keeps coming back. And, you know, it, all the ones that I've never lost a milkweed plant, they just keep spreading mm. in all the little spots where I've planted them, uh, and then they just spread willy nilly all over the yard. The, uh, the shoot is, it, it's a bit like asparagus. I, I don't tend to eat a lot of shoots because I kind of prefer the bounty of all the other edible parts, but I will, I usually cut a few if I know I'm coming back to an area. Um, and again, in those mode spots, I'll cut them. Like when I see the mode trail and I see the new shoots come up, I'll go, you know, I'll, I'll go through real quick and cut those. Um, I like them. The, the shoot is, is really good. Just steamed. Or pan fried, you know, real quick. You only need to cook it for a very brief period of time. Um, I don't. The cla- all the classical uh, literature suggests to boil milkweed. I've never really boiled milkweed. Um, I hmm. Only occasionally will blanch the pods, um, which we'll get to. But the I don't boil the shoots. I don't. I tend to either just stir fry them or. Um, you know, steam them. They're really nice steamed with just a little bit of butter, salt and pepper, something like that. Very simple. Um, then the buds are the part that's compared to broccoli a lot. Uh, they taste like, most of the parts taste to me like green beans. It's a, it's a, it's actually a, well, it's, they taste like milkweed, but green bean is probably the closest vegetable that I would compare the flavor to. It's got a, there's a very kind of clean vegetal characteristic to it. It doesn't have the bitterness of, of broccoli or um, or the weird, like, I don't even know what, grassiness of asparagus. They don't have, doesn't mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. those flavors. It's a very gentle, it's a, a pretty mild vegetable, um, but, but really flavorful. It has a slight sweetness, too. Um, I read something recently when I was reading up for the show. Someone compared eating raw milkweed to eating plums. Which I thought was really. Oh, I want to. Yeah, I want to like taste some a raw milkweed bug now with that in mind because it's that's a very interesting analogy. It does have a subtle sweetness to it. It's not super sweet, but it's got a subtle uh, sweetness to it, kind of like green beans can. Um, but so the buds, uh, the buds I really like uh, stir fried, and they also make great little fritters, um, you know, or a little tempura. Mm-hmm. A good way to prepare them. They have a real. They, they, I think, really benefit from the like a very light amount of cooking. I think they have such a nice flavor that you don't want to 
overcook them. And they're also, they get soggy quickly, especially boiled. That's why I, I never boil them. I pickle them too, um, which is really, mm. um, and I've lacto-fermented them. Um, oh, cool. Quite good. Yeah. They get a little funky lacto-fermented, so you have to get them in the fridge kind of quick, but, um, but nothing like lacto-fermented hosta, for instance, which if you ferment that for more than two days, it smells like wet dog. Uh, um, and then when the when the buds open up the flowers are edible and people use them a lot to um, make a simple syrup or cordials or liqueurs Uh, they tend to turn whatever liquid they're immersed in Uh, i make vinegar with them primarily they tend to turn whatever liquid they're in a really lovely pink and they also have a mild coagulant factor, um, which can be nice for a simple syrup. I mean, it helps mm-hmm. helps bring things together. They were used a lot in soups by Native Americans, which is interesting. I haven't really tried that. Um, and apparently, they can also be dried very well, which I've also not done. Um, I haven't. I haven't really. I've preserved them by freezing, and I've preserved them in, uh, you know, in in liquids. But I haven't uh, tried drying. Mm-hmm. But apparently they dry quite, quite well, which makes sense because they're very, the flower is very sturdy. It's a very complex and sturdy flower. They, you can squeeze the, each individual uh, flower and, you know, they're, they're quite firm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm, and yeah, but that's mostly, I think the, that that's the part of the milkweed that has the more sweet applications. It has a very, very sweet uh, nature as a flower. It's not in any way better. Um, I like to throw them in my summer rolls and things like that too. Um, they're really nice. Just pull each individual little flower off the, each cluster has dozens of flowers on it. So, um, and then my favorite part is the pods, which, uh, I think my favorite way to make those is I blanch them very quickly in boiling water and then drain them. And then I bake them in the oven in a sauce. It's actually a, based on a traditional Greek dish, which is a green bean dish. And I bake them um, with uh, like onions and tomatoes and tomato sauce and um, a lot of olive oil. And like you kind of cook everything together in a saute pan for a few minutes and then you put it in the oven and cover it with foil or parchment paper. And it bakes into this you know, for a really long time into this like really slow cooked stew type dish, which uh, then you can eat at room temperature or, or still warm. I, I actually prefer it like cool down a bit in that room temperature. It's kind of like a nice little mezza type dish, but um, wow, that sounds great! Really good, yeah. That's that's yeah. I make every year, um, yeah, and it's it and and I've done things too. I've done um, I cook a lot of uh, Indian inspired food. And I have a lot of good Indian preparations for okra, and I've used some of those too, which are kind of well, actually quite similar. The um, Indians use uh, um, tomatoes a lot with okra because it cuts the mucilaginous factor, the acid. Mm-hmm. Tomatoes makes the okra less slimy. They'll do like whole okra fried and then cooked with onions and tomatoes, which is, it's quite similar actually to the Greek dish, um, but with a lot of spices. Um, and I've done stuff like that and done, uh, you know, um, and of course, you know, you can't really be deep frying them like fried okra. That's really good too. Mm. 
And then the, the, the fifth part is the cheese inside the pods, which, or the immature silk, which you can just use like you would cheese, throw it in. Uh, it's actually great in um, like a cooked pasta dish. And you can, there's a window, it's a pretty brief window, but where the pod becomes a little bit too firm to eat whole, but the immature silk inside is still good. But it's very difficult. One thing about that is you have to be kind of careful because it's very difficult to tell. Uh, you have to get the, the feel of it right. I wouldn't advise collecting like two dozen pods off of plants and then coming home to find that they're all too firm. Um, you have to. Uh-huh. You have to kind of learn how the, how the how the feel of it relates to what's going on inside because they can be it can be tough to tell at first. You know, it's it's that's one thing about milkweed. I, I really don't encourage people to go absolutely hog wild on it, but to really again going back to the patients thing to really understand their native population before they collect any. I waited a couple of years before I collected any milkweed at all. And that was a very conscious decision on my part to not impact this population until I really had a good grasp on, you know, exactly how much of that there was, where the really abundant areas were. And, um, and then of course I started growing it, which made things a little bit easier. And I've since had tons of, uh, monarch caterpillars and, you know, butterflies in my yard all the time and, uh, lots of bees too. Because of this close association, the monarch is sometimes called the milkweed butterfly. If you have not recognized the plant, perhaps you know it by its fluffy seeds. Thanks for sharing milkweed with me. Do you mind if I share a plant with you? Absolutely. Go ahead. Great. Well, this was a challenge for me because I know you're quite a, a plant person, and I thought maybe my like my uh, technique for maybe being able to surprise you is to move over to Europe where, because you talk a lot about uh, North American plants. And I did live in Switzerland for five years, and so I have some experience in Switzerland. However, when I lived there, I wasn't quite really into plants. I actually regret that now, because I lived there, and I know that you know Europe has really cool cultures of foraging and wild plants, but I didn't really understand it. However, if you live in Switzerland, you cannot avoid what is called uh, the the Bärlauch season, and that is my plant, which is Bärlauch. Are you familiar with Bärlauch? No, not at all. So you may know it by its its English name because it's common all across Europe. So there's names for in all the languages, but its name in England is Ramsons. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So uh-huh. it is the um, the European cousin of the ramp that which you mentioned earlier, and I and I picked that because and maybe I'll have you chime in a little bit of you know ramps as you mentioned you don't harvest and are kind of uh, you know uh, problematic over here. Um, I don't know if you want to chime in about that just briefly um, with ramps, but. Uh, yeah, because well, I know you have some some interesting, strong feelings about ramps. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're, uh, the ramson is allium ursinum, right? Ursinum, yes. And the ramps are That's, allium tricolor. Hence, or tri- bear. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So the, the, the name in German means means bear leek. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Ali, and uh, and in lots of other languages, it means bear. It's related to bears, and I'll get into a little bit. But I just maybe to give maybe just to have you give your uh, your brief warning to the listeners as far as how you feel about ramps. You mentioned it a bit earlier, but uh, yeah. you know to make that clear. Well, I think that you bringing up the European tradition is very very important for American foragers to because in Europe the tradition is they almost never dig the root. 
it's all leaves. And right. that is what we need to do here because, first of all, the leaf is where all the flavor is. The mm-hmm. leaves are much more flavorful than the bulb end. Um, I don't find the bulbs particularly interesting. I don't think they're more. I don't think they're any more interesting than the bulbs of scallions or field garlic. I and I definitely don't think it's worth digging a plant that is, a, 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 you know, a native plant that is in certain parts of its range. Of course, it's still abundant because it does form very thick communities. But in my area, it is not abundant. It is mm-hmm. danger. Um, we're in between two major cities, Phil, you know, Philadelphia and New York, and, you know, basically roughly equidistant from both. And our woods are filled with invasive plants, which tend to outcompete um, the ramps, uh, mm-hmm. in particular, garlic mustard and field garlic. Both mm-hmm. are, you know, they encroach into the uh into the population another plant that actually encroaches into the population of ramps here is may apple which is a native plant but that also mm. really dense stands and is very very common here and i've found several places where may apple communities sort of overwhelm the ramps because they cut they they open pretty early too and they cover they keep the plants from photosynthesizing because they'll open up their big umbrellas on top of the ramps uh, right. Yeah, so they and they spread. They also spread by rhizomatic growth, and they move fairly quickly. Uh, they don't reproduce much at all by seed. They very rarely reproduce by seed. Um, but yeah, so I yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I was gonna say. So yeah, I mean, I think I think that's really interesting. Of you know, this plant ramps, which is very popular, and you read about it everywhere. But it is because of its popularity at risk. And so I think your your point of like you know you don't harvest it where you see them where you are because there's not enough. And then also this, I think, problem of harvesting the whole plant, like you mentioned, and harvesting the bulb is something very common. Like if you go to the farmer's market, you never just see the leaves. It's always the bulbs, no. right? And and as you said, in Europe, that is not the tradition. I never I never knew, I didn't really have much, like I knew bear lock was in dishes and stuff like that, but you never saw a bulb. It's always the leaves. It's always the leaves. And and I think for one, because of that reason, uh, you know, bear lock is really abundant in Europe, mm. like... I mean, you walk in the woods and you smell it uh, in the right time of year. The menus in Switzerland is just like, in the springtime, everybody has bear lock on the menu. And that definitely has to do, I think, the tradition of harvesting. Also, uh, from my understanding, the plant is a little bit of a faster reproducer than ramps. Ramps is like a little bit slow and it's not it's not as fast as like field garlic, I don't think, but it's, I think, about twice as fast of reproductive. Yeah, well, the, the yeah. ramps take, the ramp, a ramp, takes seven years to go from seed to flower and and from what i read it was a little bit unclear i was trying to find some sources but it's about two to three for for the bear for the bear lauch um so yeah when i was in switzerland i would eat it i love the flavor i'd smell in the woods but i actually never saw it growing and i just wasn't curious enough about plants back then um which i regret now but this this spring i we went back to switzerland to visit for the first time in in a long time and i was just uh we're actually in Liechtenstein. um and we parked the car to like go see the castle of Liechtenstein, and like right in front of the car, I was like, "Are those? Is that bear lock?" I got so excited. Everyone I was with, with thought it was, <laughs> but I was like so excited that I could recognize it, even though I I'd never seen it really in person before. But I've been reading about ramps and and knew it was similar. And so then I did the test, which is you break it and you smell it, and it smells like garlic. And I was like, "It is." And then I that's when I also learned from my from my friend from Liechtenstein was like there are, which I don't know if this is the case here. There are two plants in Europe that are similar looking but have toxic properties one being lily of the valley mm-hmm. and one being uh it's uh 
autumn crocus, which I guess you don't have the the worry of like harvesting autumn crocus around the time bear lock is because they have different seasons, but they can look pretty similar. Um, but lily of the valley also looks pretty similar, and it's around the same time frame as as that. But it doesn't smell like garlic. No, it doesn't smell like garlic. It does look fairly similar, um, and it's I have seen it in areas in the woods where you might expect to find ramps. Usually it's an abandoned a place where there was a home site that's been abandoned. Uh, because mm-hmm. it, does, it is perennial and it forms real dense communities like ramps do. And it does look quite similar when it first emerges. So yeah, that that's always the tell. There's actually a lot of plants that look similar to, uh, you know, Allium canadense or uh, Allium uh, vineale, the field garlic, the Canada onion mm-hmm. garlic. Uh, and, and the, the, the like you said, the the tell is always the smell. It's you know you break yeah. it. You you know if it smells like garlic, it's garlic. If it smells like onions or garlic, and it looks like onions or garlic, it's 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 an alley. It's a good it's a good trick. Um, yeah. Which is which I've, I've had a little bit of experience in my yard with some of the field garlic as well. And there's some of those other plants that look almost similar, but luckily that's a good trick. Um, I wanted to just mention the the life cycle of ramps, which I think is very interesting. You know, those leaves come out in the springtime, or ramsons we're talking about, not ramps, but they're the same. The life cycle is basically the same. The ramsons or the bear lauk comes out in the early spring and have these, you know, pretty big leaves for, I think, what we think of for, you know, uh, domestic garlics. The leaves are much bigger, and it's because they're this this, uh, plant that's trying to gather up all the sun before the before the leaves of the of the trees leaf out, right? So it's gathering that light, and then the leaves die back, and they send up that really cool little flower, which is really nice. Um, I think the well, there was a mix of those flowers and the the leaves when I saw the bear lock. So I don't know does the does ramps have leaves when it has the stock or not at all? Um, it, it, they're usually drooping at that point. The mm-hmm. And I've often seen the flower just alone. Um, I think it's got a much slower cycle. Yeah, I, I've once once or twice I've seen a flower up with with the kind of the drooping post photosynthesis leaves, um, which is actually that that's pretty much when I collect leaves. If I I didn't collect any this year at all, but mm-hmm. I do collect them. I just uh, I snip them kind of like when they start to droop and after they've after they've returned their energy to the bulb. Um, and then, um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I just dry them and make, and mix them with salt and it, that, that oh, cool. ramps all year long or, or oil we, really good infused in olive oil too. We, we bought some bear lock salt while we were in, uh, oh. Liechtenstein. They, it's like a thing they sell. It's like a big deal there. But unfortunately, like it, it fell open and spilled all over our back. Oh. I was really bummed. So we didn't, didn't get to bring any back. Um, so, uh, so one, one interesting thing found, and this actually ties into something you said earlier. There's t- two things I want to mention about the name Berlauch. And the name Berlauch means bear leek or bear garlic, and lots of other languages have the same name. But I, I found several references on the internet to the reason why it's called that is that they say that European brown bears like to eat them after coming out of hibernation. And this is one of those things, though, where, where the literature, if you Google it, you see this over and over again without any primary source. And so, I mean, I can believe it, but I also have not seen any, like, like I've never, I haven't seen any photos of bears eating bear lauch. And I, I, I was wondering very much so if this is, like, something that's true or if it's just, like, you know, an old wife's tale. Um, but it's funny, just on, if you Google it, you find the same answer over and over again without any actual, like evidence which is which is interesting and and it very very uh, well could be true i did try to message a few 
a couple friends from Romania because that's like the place that has the most European brown bears in in Europe still. And I was wondering if they had like any firsthand knowledge, but I have not heard back yet. Yeah. So if I get a good message back, I'll put that at the end of the show. Yeah, but <laughs> I'm not hopeful to, to have it for sure. But I would love to hear someone say, yeah, I see them eat those in the spring. Um, but that that's that's the commonest knowledge of why it's called uh, bear lauch is that. But it, but it could also just be that it's wild garlic and, you know... I, um, the other name for it, though, and this is a similar story, the other, one of the other names that is called, it's sometimes called cow leek. Um, huh. And there is a few references also on Wikipedia and over and over again, that, and they all say the same thing, but I can't find the real evidence, is they say that dairy farmers, some in the UK and some in Switzerland, used to feed a lot of Berlauch to their cows to make a slightly garlicky fa- flavored milk to make cheese. And I believe it, but I want to like know like what was that cheese called and yeah. where was it grown and 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 the internet is just like they did this and there's no other details. I'm like, no, please tell me. So I did. One, I did message a Swiss friend and we'll see if he knows, but he probably doesn't. One, one would think it would be easiest just to put the leaves in the cheese. That's true, and they do do that yeah. for sure. They do do that for sure. That's, that's um, great. That but the seasoning salt is the thing though, because that's one of my favorite. Uh, you know, seasoning salts is the is the ramp salt. It really has like a it really transmits that flavor, you know, um, quite effectively without using a lot of material, which is kind of nice. Um, yeah, that's cool. I, I'll have to, I'll have to see if I can get a friend to send me some. I was really bummed when we opened our suitcase, and there's just like the the bag smelt great though, <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it was filled with <laughs> bear lux out. But anyway, I, I did think that was an interesting thing. This is not related to plants, but you mentioned it too. Is just this thing of common knowledge can repeat. And I think in some ways Google is broken in that way where you'll get you'll get the fact that everyone decides to repeat over mm-hmm. and over again without ever getting to the core of what that means. Um, and yeah, it's it's a little bit of a bummer when I'm researching plants, I'll find something they're like, oh, that's interesting, but what is the real story beneath that? And I think it would be much more interesting, but I think the way Google works and the way the internet works and the way other kind of literature works, we tend to repeat things. And yeah. uh, it's an interesting epistemological problem that that i was thinking about when thinking about bearlock but also other plants we're talking about as well yeah it's a, a common misinformation i mean that's it's true with and milkweed's a plant that you know and 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 wild garlics and, and onions too are, are plants that both have these a lot of times very common misconceptions attached to them that people repeat without really sort of exploring the the reasoning behind it um you know the i mean i you know in going back to milkweed for a second, I mean, one of the things I I've noticed about it is you know, posting about, you know, even though I was very, very careful about how I approached it, uh, posting about it over the years, I've had people, you know, rage at me that I would dare consume this plant. Um, mm-hmm. you know, as if, uh, I was the one responsible for, you know, the mass <laughs> agricultural reshaping of the planet. That's Mm-hmm. Bro, you know, I mean, that's why you know we we don't have you know we have an issue with monarch butterflies. It's not it's not because I'm eating a few milkweed buds in the spring. It's it's because we reshape the planet into a you know a factory farm. You know, and, and we 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 eliminate plants like this from our homes and from our fields with equal abandon because you know we don't see it as what it is. Uh, luckily, things are changing, but um, and the same thing is true of ramps. I mean, it's been a they're an exploited resource. They're something that has gone from being like a niche food in Appalachia and, you know, occasionally on restaurant tables, you know, 
to something that now you can buy in Whole Foods, um, you know, thrown into a giant bin with a bunch of other, you know, um, cultivated plants. Yeah. You know, that's just alarming because it's, you know, it's, it's not the same thing, you know. Um, luckily, though, they're actually kind of easy to grow. Um, and I have Allium arsinum seeds, which I want to plant. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm going to plant them in the fall, though, because uh, they need to be cold stratified, like milkweed ramps. Um, so they need they need the cold season to stratify the seed. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I've got my cat. He's He he always demands, this is Cheeto, he always demands to be on camera when, when I'm talking yeah, to people, which is hilarious. I'm Frances hasn't shown up. She usually likes <laughs> when I'm on a call. Um, but, uh, the, yeah, the, the um, you know, the, the, the problem is our system, not not individual act. Yeah. And the more that people can learn that these foods can be very sustainable, um, you know, is, I mean, you know, cutting a ramp leaf late in the season is not going to harm the plant. It's already got a lot Mm -hmm. of energy for the next year. It's going to develop, you know, and you can collect one here and there and, you know, you can do something useful with them. Um, and you know, taking a couple buds off of a milkweed plant, which usually has, you know, five to eight flowers on it, isn't going to, detract from it being a lure for the monarch to come and lay its eggs on the leaves, which is what the, the caterpillars eat the leaves really um, primarily and not the parts that we, um, you know, they don't, they do sometimes eat parts of the pods, but they uh, primarily eat the leaves and it's, you know, that's, we can coexist with this. It doesn't have to be one or the other, you know. A wiser fellow than myself once said, sometimes you eat the bar and much blood. Sometimes the bar while he eats you. Hmm. Is that some kind of Eastern thing? Far from it. Well, that was super fascinating, talking with Mallory about milkweed and bearlauch and also ramps. And actually, I think this episode is also going to be the Ramps episode because Ramps is so similar to Bearlauch. And also, we talked a lot about Ramps. And also, since Ramps are so threatened in this area, uh, I think having a particular Ramps episode is probably not a good idea because we wouldn't want to incentivize any more over-harvesting of them. So this is the Milkweed, Bearlauch, and also Ramps episode of the podcast. On that note... I mentioned how I texted some friends uh, in Romania about that story of bears coming out of hibernation and uh, eating bear lauch. And if you remember on episode nine, my friend Raluca was on the show and she's from Romania. And uh, she said she used to gather bear lauch, or it's actually called leurdas, uh, I think, if I'm pronouncing that correctly in Romania. But she collected it every spring as a child in, in the forest of Romania. But she had never heard that myth about bears. So maybe it's not a common myth or story in Romania. Um, or maybe it's just something she never heard, but she Googled it and found the same kind of apocryphal stories that I did. So unfortunately, that mystery is not solved. But if you have any evidence of bears eating bearlauch in the forest, please send me some information. That would be really cool. But as of now, they will remain a mystery if that's really true or just a story. Also, my friend in Switzerland had no idea about the cow thing. But uh, yeah. Something that Mallory mentioned in this episode really stuck with me, and that was when he said that plants that are his favorites are the plants that tend to have lessons to teach him. And that really stuck with me, and I think, I think it's true for the way that I choose the plants that I talk about 
on this podcast as well. I just never kind of put it together in those words. Um, but yeah, I do think the plants I've talked about do have things to teach me. And so I think going forward on Rootbound, every episode, I'm going to try to answer that question. Like, what lesson does this plant have to teach me? And so I think this was a really great episode. I'm really thankful for having Mallory on and really kind of gave me a new question to think about. And it's something we're going to do on, on every episode going forward. So thanks, Mallory. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Mallory O'Donnell. Mallory is a wild food gatherer, grower, cook, and writer focused on the ethical and sustainable use of native edible medicinal plants and also invasive edibles. Mallory is currently working on a book of wild food called Cucina Povera, featuring traditional world-class ethnic dishes from around the world. Uh, you can follow Mallory on Instagram at Mallory O'Donnell, and Mallory also has a website which is called How to Cook Weed. All those links will be in the show notes. Rootbound is hosted by Steve Ellington. That is me. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. But if you can go outside, maybe you could journey out in the early spring and observe a bear from a safe distance and confirm or deny whether they actually eat bear lauch or not. That'd be cool. I've been kissed by a rose on the gray. What does that, what does that mean? Roses.